Happy New Year, everyone. I'm sure 2024 has a lot of fun surprises in store for all of us. If you believe the Zadok priests are correct, we are approaching the final 50-year jubilee cycle of the Age of the Gentiles, starting in March of 2026. So you can read more about that on my Substack site, thefoundrypress.org, in the Parousia series, which we just finished at our church. It's fascinating information on how accurate the Zadok priests were in the things they predicted. The Zadok priests being those who shepherded the Essene communities where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So things should continue to get interesting as we get both a divine agenda and a satanic agenda teed up for what could be this final phase of human history coming forward. Now, that's important to keep in mind as we're making it into the home stretch with our study on primeval history found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We're getting into the story of Noah today, and we're going to be focusing on the divine agenda reflected there. That's going to be intentionally juxtaposed with the satanic antichrist agenda reflected in the story immediately following the Tower of Babel. It's important to keep that in the rearview mirror as we approach today's topic. So today we're talking about the story of Noah. We're going to assume our listeners are familiar with the elements of this story. So we will be covering the entire topic today, which encompasses almost four chapters. So the story of the flood of Noah technically begins with the story of the sons of God, inappropriately mingling with human women in Genesis 6, which we covered last week or last episode. This is the catalyst that makes the flood necessary in God's eyes. There has been genetic tampering with God's good creation, and that requires cleansing. Now, just so we don't ignore the likelihood that many of you might think the whole genetic tampering thing is overrated, I want to quote to you from Joseph Farrell's book, Genes, Giants, Monsters, and Men. Now, Farrell holds a Ph.D. from Oxford University, so he's no lightweight thinker. And here's how the, uh, the section of the book that I'm going to quote goes. The I Ching was discovered by Fu Si in 3000 B.C through an insight into nature that defies our understanding. Now, sidebar, the I Ching was like this ancient numbering system by which the ancient Chinese would try and predict the future. Okay, so just wanted to provide some context there. I'm going to continue quoting Farrell now. Given all of these similarities between the I Ching and DNA, human DNA, geneticist Gunther S. Stent wrote, that the congruence between it, the I Ching, and the genetic code is nothing short of amazing. Indeed, it is so amazing that the chances of it being a statistical fluke are very small. The I Ching may, in fact, be viewed as the other half of DNA. This means that someone in ancient times knew something and that the possibility arises that Fu Si did not discover the I Ching, but rather 
The I Ching is a legacy of some lost civilization and its science. For ancient China certainly did not have sophisticated knowledge of the genetic code. Just who did has already been seen from the ancient texts examined in the previous chapters, the Anunnaki. Now, you could say the same thing about Genesis 6, but what Farrell is pointing out is that in ancient texts, there is a record of this same incursion divulging information God did not want divulged for whatever reason. So likely before the flood of Noah, as a consequence of these godlike beings interacting with humans, not only genetically tampering with humans, but all of God's good creation, that was occurring along with teaching humans all kinds of sophisticated knowledge that they wouldn't have otherwise have had. Now that's documented in First Enoch, the book of First Enoch. There's plenty of evidence for ancient advanced civilizations that we have absolutely no reasonable explanation for other than what they try and push out there, aliens, aliens from outer space, which is nonsense. Gobekli Tepe is a good example of this, showing megalithic structures and civilization as early as 11,000 BC. Now that defies both our scientific and theological understanding that blows up pretty much anyone's timeline of human history. There are things being alluded to here in Genesis mythologically that we have to be honest about. We just don't understand. We aren't given the details. The important thing is that we need to take away is that we can be confident in the testimony of Scripture and not feel threatened by this other data. It does not present any contradictions if we properly think about how to interpret these texts. That also goes for how we think about the flood of Noah. Was it a global flood or a local flood? That's how the debate goes. I don't know. You don't know either. But the larger corpus of scripture would allow us to interpret interpret it either way. The ancient Near East was the entire known world to the authors of scripture. But either way, there's clearly something being communicated here other than just a giant rainstorm. It appears to be communicating a restructuring of reality so that what happens in Genesis 6 can no longer happen in the unimpeded way that it was before. So here are some clues to tell us that's the true that's true or that's the case. Point number 1. As a consequence of the flood, human lifespan dramatically decreases from almost a millennium to 100 years or so. So humans will, from this point forward, have basically one-tenth of the lifespan they did before the flood. Now, that means human knowledge will be severely limited going forward. Because one can only learn so much in a hundred years compared with a thousand. All of this has allusions back to the original temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in so doing would become like gods. There's something about knowledge and humanity's preparedness to obtain certain knowledge before they are ready that God is going to retard. So these 
in this incursion of divine beings we find in Genesis 6, the book of Enoch, etc., are divulging information to human beings. They do not have the wisdom or the character or the developmental capacity to carry without doing massive damage to other human beings. That's why God is wanting to keep that, uh, keep that thwarted so that humanity can develop and mature so that when they're given power, they won't destroy things with it or destroy other people with it. Point number two, humans are allowed to eat meat for the first time as a consequence of the flood. So it appears that somehow conditions have been altered environmentally unto now requiring different nutritional needs in human beings being met. Point number three, God somehow removes the curse from Genesis 3 affecting the ground. There are other environmental clues given in the text, but the bottom line is the consequence of all of it seems to imply that there is a reordering of creation so that the incursion represented by the information in Genesis 6, the sons of God, coming into the daughters of men, producing offspring that are the giants, the Nephilim, that activity is greatly retarded, but not completely eliminated. Because the text says, and also afterward, there appears to be a rupture created between the heavens and the earth, or between the supernatural and natural realms which did not exist at prior times in history. That's why to this day, with our natural eyes, we can't see into this realm. We don't see angels and demons. Even though as believers, we know, we understand they exist and they're real and they're all around us. There's somehow been a division created between our reality and theirs that we cannot penetrate. Now, there's some other important consequences of the flood we need to take note of. At the end of chapter 8 of Genesis and continuing into chapter 9, God is establishing a covenant with humanity that is unconditional in nature, where he not only promises never to flood the earth again, apparently the new conditions, that separation between the natural and the supernatural world, uh, make a further judgment like this, obsolete. It's not going to be necessary moving forward. But he also repeats the original mandate that he makes to human beings. Remember from Genesis chapter one, nothing has changed in that regards. They are to spread out and populate the entire planet, subjugating everything as God's imagers or representatives of his sovereign governance. We are his governors, his reigning governors on the earth. So it's the original mandate from Genesis 1 repeated. Now, before we get further here, we need to take a mental note, again, projecting forward to what is going on with the Tower of Babel. Remember, there's two agendas being trotted out here. There's God's agenda to rule the world through human beings, and then there's Satan's agenda. So in asking humans to spread out, he's contrasting what is happening in Genesis 11. They're accumulating, right? and why it produces evil. God is providing instructions so that humans don't focus on accumulating power and resources. He wants those spread out. The reason being that the accumulation of wealth, power, and resources attracts corrupt people. Not only that, 
it breeds corruption in the minds and hearts of good people. Fallen people, but good people. Now, that might not be communicated directly in the text, but that is the story of the rest of the Bible as well as being clearly demonstrated in human history. We will discuss the opposite of these instructions, the instructions to spread out in Genesis 11, where Satan is having people accumulate power and wealth and resources. Now, it has been argued that building cities and empires can't be seen as totally sinful and evil because while the Bible begins with the instructions to spread out in Genesis, it ends with a massive city in Revelation, Revelation 21. So cities can't be all evil, right? Well, the problem with that interpretation is that when humans, fallen humans, are in charge of cities, it will always lead to corruption, oppression, slave-like conditions for the majority of people living in them. Again, when they're under fallen human control. The city presented in Revelation 21 is under God's control with the resurrected or unfallen saints in charge. That is a key distinction. History has demonstrated these instructions to be wise. Humans are not capable of managing the complexity and temptations that come along with the accumulation that civilizations bring without God's direct governance. So in other words, only the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead can bring about truly advanced civilizations while also maintaining justice and righteousness and prosperity for the majority of people, not just a select few. Nothing else is going to work. It will all crumble under the weight of corruption. Remember what it says in Genesis 6, the only thoughts in the hearts of men is always evil all the time. And unfortunately, nothing has changed. Now, if you're born again, that's changed, but... Human beings in the natural state, that's still absolutely true. Embedded within this covenant are also certain laws that God wants to be obeyed which this new world, by which this new world is to be governed. Things like, and I'm going to be paraphrasing somewhat, but there's laws embedded in the text that God wants highlighted for Noah. And he says, while you can kill animals... Don't kill human beings because they are unique out of all of God's creatures in being imagers of God. So, again, still paraphrasing another law. While you can kill and eat animals, don't be cruel to them. Don't eat meat torn from an animal while it's still alive. That's cruel. So let's be kind to God's creation. This is a part of what is recognized in other ancient writings, Jewish writings, as Noahide laws. That is, general laws that are to govern all of the Gentile nations worldwide. The Old Testament law is going to only be applied to the newly formed Jewish nation. So the laws there are just for the Old Testament Jewish nation, which has now been dissolved. These laws, the Noahic laws, applied to everyone everywhere. And so Paul was alluding to that, 
when he talks about governments being instituted by God in the book of Romans, he's talking about governments are to organize to enforce these laws. And here are the seven laws that are listed, again, other places in ancient Jewish literature. Number one, don't worship idols. Number two, do not curse God. Number three, do not commit murder. Number four, do not commit adultery or sexual immorality. Number five, do not steal. Number six, do not eat flesh torn from a living animal. And number seven, to establish courts of justice. Interesting. So humans do need to organize to protect and enforce these laws. Now, I want to finish this segment by reading from Ken Johnson's book, The Ancient Testament of the Patriarchs. I will read his summary of the various fragments found in the Dead Sea Scrolls labeled 1Q20, columns 6 through 18. Now, if, we haven't, if you haven't heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are writings that were preserved by the Zadok priests and the Essenes in caves in the desert in Israel. And they are on order of 100 to 2 years before the writings of the New Testament. So they're ancient. We don't know how ancient they are, but we know they predate the New Testament writings on order of 1 to 200 years. So this is going to be the section from this scroll called the Testament of Noah. It's a section that starts on the last line of column 5, which says, A copy of the book of the words of Noah. So apparently... It's understood Noah did have writings that he had with him on the ark that had been preserved by the Zadok priests, by the the ancient Jews and the Zadok priests in particular. So here's a summary. This is Ken Johnson's summary of what's recorded in these fragments. So on columns 6 through 7, it gives an account of Noah's life and the visions he had about the fallen angels, the Nephilim, the genetic tampering, and the coming flood. After the flood, he is to rule all the nations and forbid any form of idolatry. So as uh, God's imager, Noah understands himself to be the chief of whoever is going to inhabit the earth. The middle of column 7 reveals a descendant of Noah who would cleanse all mankind through his blood. So that is an ancient messianic prophecy. Columns 8 through 9, they're badly fragmented, but seem to show Noah aboard the ark, waiting for the waters to recede, spending his time looking over the written prophecies handed down by his fathers. He mentions a prophecy of weeks, and specifically his week. This sounds like the apocalypse of weeks given in the ancient book of Enoch. If so, we are missing some of the information. Columns 10 through 12, Relate Noah's sacrificing after the flood. It records the names of his grandsons and the sacrifice he offered right before receiving the prophetic dream. Columns 13 through 15 record the dream of Noah during the time referenced in Genesis 9, verses 20 through 29. Noah sees himself as a great cedar tree. He is the king of the earth, decreeing the Noahide laws for all nations. But the nations ignore him, and one after another seek to conquer the world. Only Shem 
remains loyal to Noah and God. So Noah anoints him to be the new priest, and a prophecy is given that among his seed, your name will be called. This means the Messiah will be descended from Shem. Invasions come from the west, which is the land of Canaan, and the north, which is the lands that Nimrod establishes. Now, interestingly enough, sidebar, it is recorded in ancient Jewish writings that Shem is actually the person who holds the office, Melchizedek, who blesses Abraham. And according to other ancient writings, Shem starts a school of prophecy based upon the information that he gets from Noah, where he actually trains Abraham and his sons in the knowledge of God uh, in the later chapters of Genesis. But that's an interesting story. We're not going to cover that now, just food for thought. Okay, column 15 advances into the end times with the Messiah bringing judgment from the southern part of the land and sealing all rebels in the pit eternally. Columns 16 through 18 recount the dividing of the earth between Noah's three sons and their subdivisions of it. The same account appears in full in the ancient book of Jubilees, chapters 8 through 9. Again, that was all Ken Johnson's summary from his book, Ancient Testament of the Patriarchs. And that wraps up this segment until next next time, where we will be discussing the genealogy of Genesis 10, the character of Nimrod, who is the original template for the Antichrist figure. We'll find that later in scripture. But remember, we've got two trajectories, two agendas being trotted out here in the book of Genesis. There's God's agenda being trotted out through Noah and his descendants. God wants to rule the earth through faithful human imagers. And then you're going to have a counter agenda rolled out in Genesis 10 through characters like Nimrod. And then Babel, civilization building, humans accumulating power, wealth, and resources to make a great name for themselves out of pride and ambition, unchecked pride and ambition, are going to bring massive corruption into the earth. So, until then, uh, enjoy the new year. And I'm believing God's kingdom plans and purposes are going to prevail in our minds and hearts in new and fresh ways in this coming year. So that's my prayer for me and for you. And I believe it's going to come true. Amen. Amen. All right. Blessings to you. We'll catch you in the next episode.